BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, Trent. Hello, Britflix. Welcome to the show. Um, Why? Usually, it's um, I do one of these a week, uh, and that's 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 usually intense enough. But in the in the run into Fright Fest, I do fifteen or twenty in August, which is a bit silly, but fun at the same time. You know, you got to do it, right? Fright Fest is a big deal, and there's a lot of films playing there. So it is, and that's 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 what I do. I basically I hijack the notion of what Fright Fest is because it's a big UK um, genre event, a big European genre event, I should add. And um, Britflix, I usually do just British filmmakers, but because I'm a big fan of horror, I'm al- I'm allowed outside of my comfort zone for August. I run wild talking to the foreigners like nice. yourself. They, they let you out of your cage for exactly. the month. So the reason we're talking together is not to wax lyrical about Fright Fest just on itself. We're here to talk about your movie, 68 Kill. Which you know, it's already got me at the title. So, <laughs> so tell us, tell us a bit more about. Give us a synopsis as to what it is to be getting the name uh, Sixty Eight Kill. Yeah, you know, Sixty Eight Kill is uh, based on a novel by a guy named Brian Smith, who I've been reading for years. He self-published this little pulp novel, and I read it and just kind of fell in love with it, and uh, contacted the writer, and I optioned it, and I wrote it and directed it, and uh, it's sort of a neo-gothic southern trash crime horror romantic comedy thriller can i do that is that okay i think you've i think you've done it i think you've done it and it's now been recorded so that's what it is i'm not going to repeat it back i'm not going to repeat it back here because i can't remember all of them but yeah i don't i don't think i could do it myself so (laughs) 
So when you're taking, when you started that process off, you you were uh, and you got you got the um, the permission or whatever to to start adapting that book for the screen. What 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 were the um, what were the big decisions you were making to try and make it into a movie? Because obviously, a book and a movie are not the same thing. Yeah, you know, and it's really interesting. This is the first time I ever adapted anything or had even really considered it. Uh, yeah. You know, I've written things based on other people's ideas for hire and things like that, but I've never done an adaptation. Mm. And, uh, you know, the the novel is, like, quick and breezy and pulpy, and I was like, oh, no problem. I'll just adapt it. So I sat down, and <laughs> I printed up. I printed up this thing and I did it. I did a uh, like a one to one comparison ratio sort of a script board. And then when I looked at it, I was like, wow, a lot of the like things that were that I thought worked in the book didn't quite work as a movie. I mean, fundamentally, they're two different art forms. And, uh, you know, obviously, when you tell it, uh, you can write a novel in omniscient third person and you can get inside a character's head and you can understand why they make the decisions that they do. But we can't do that in a film. Uh, so, you know, uh, characters had to be created to sort of like, uh, fill in backstory and fundamentally they were just, uh, there were just certain things that I felt like I needed to be changed in order to make it a stronger motion picture. Uh, so I went ahead and did it with the author's pr- permission and, you know, eventually he got to the point where he said to me, wow, if I had spent a little bit more time working on this book, I would have probably done exactly some of the things that you did, which really? was the great uh, which was the greatest compliment that I could that I could uh, that I could get? Yeah, I mean, there's certain characters that kind of disappear in the book, which is an interesting gambit from a novel's point of view. But uh, without tying up those threads, those major threads, uh, it just didn't work in the movies. So I sort of it's like fu- it's funny, isn't it? How movies don't allow that to happen as easy as books do. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, people expect uh, that's that's exactly it. It's I, I guess I think it's because the novel as an art form has been around for like many hundreds of years longer than cinema has. Yeah. And as a result of that, uh, you know, novels, it's okay for them to be more experimental or to uh, maybe not uh, obey all the rules of literature. Certainly, you know, uh, bestsellers are always going to like hit certain marks, but uh, I think we're more accepting of like uh, exper- experimenting when it comes to the novel, just because it's such an older art form. Uh, but movies, like people have expectations and you have to play them in a certain way. Like a a novel, you're saying, Hey, commit to me, sit down. It might take you, who knows if it's a big novel, it might take you 10 hours. If you're a slow reader, I'm I'm asking you to commit 10 hours and you as the reader are, are committed to that. Whereas like movies are a little bit like, Hey, I want your attention. Can I have it for just like. 93 minutes, please. Uh, uh, and I promise you that I will keep you engaged. Um, so it, they're two totally different different things, even though they're based on, you know, our, our human stories, like the, uh, the, the, the machinations of them are, are different and have to be treated differently, I think. Now, your, your screenplay writing style will be, for those people that have been coming at Fright Fest in recent years, you, you gave us the, uh, the wonderful cheap thrills, yeah? Yes, the pause yes, there yes. made me scared for a second. I was like, did I get that factory wrong for a second? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is, 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 is there more than one trend? What am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I wrote Cheap Thrills. That was a spec, which means you write it speculatively. You know, sometimes people come to me and they're like, I've got an idea and a check for $2. Can you <laughs> write, write this script for me? And as a professional writer, I do that. I do that quite a bit. But uh, Cheap Thrills was actually something that I wrote on my own to try to get made. And, uh, of course, people were like, we don't know you as a director. We don't want to hire you to direct it. But 
man, we love this script and we'll, we'll buy it from you. And I've had that happen a couple of times. I don't know. I think uh, I wrote a movie called dead girl that I, don't I was about think to say, that, yeah, no, that didn't go fright fest, but it's uh, it is the, it is the zombie film that does go there where you kind of thought it wouldn't. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I do believe that like, uh, there's another fright fest. Where is it? Oh, Not uh, oh, Glasgow. Did they play? Yes. There? Yes. We did play at the Glasgow. So okay. Dead Girl played at Glasgow. Cheap Thrills played at London. And now I've got 68 Kill at London. So uh, And you're now yeah. here with the directed shops as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know what? Honestly, I, am lo- I love Dead Girl. I love Cheap Thrills. I love the guys that directed those movies. They're friends of mine. But I'm not going to lie to you. You get a little chagrined when you're like, I sat in a dark room by myself and wrote this thing and gave it to these guys, and it gets turned into this thing, but nobody really cares who the writer is, quite frankly. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> part, part, part of why I try and do this podcast, because I, I write myself but don't direct, and um, is to shine a light, if I can, on the person that writes it. Because that's why I, I always try and start with that conversation, because the film doesn't begin when we start setting the lights up, does it? It is completely true. And, I mean, I understand. I mean, after after having written so many movies and had them get made, I mean, I understand I'm not grousing, I guess, you know? I oh, just, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You go, this is the thing. The director gets the spotlight, uh, you know, unless, of course, people don't like it, and usually the screenwriter will get a, a hint of the blame if people don't like it. But if people love it, you know, the screenwriter is, is expected to sort of dutifully – step back, you know what I mean, to the edge of the stage. Didn't, and... didn't, didn't James, James Gray once said that he thought that the, he said, you know a totem pole, and you got the big, uh, from the ground up to the top, and at the top is the director. He right. said, the writer is the bit of totem pole that's buried under earth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you don't want to sound like the writer guy, but I mean, these things come from truth, you know? And I mean, when you say it, it almost makes it seem like you're the bitter writer guy, and I, I don't think so. I think if somebody... If you understand that this is – I understand that this is the situation. It's like somebody looking you in the eye and saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. And if you agree to that, you know, you, can, you have no right to complain later. So no, I'm not it's, really complaining. It's a, it's, a jo- it's a joke, I think, born out of the philosophy of doing it because you still do it. So it doesn't stop you, does it, kind of thing? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's not complaining, but it was just like, you know what? I want maybe a little bit of that – and I've always wanted to be a filmmaker. I just became a writer by uh, – it was almost accident. Literally, it was I'd like to make this movie. I've written a script, and people saying to me, yeah, but we don't know you as a director, but we've seen the script, and we've read it, we like it, and we want it. And, I mean, I've got a wife and two kids. i got mouths to feed, so I always take the money. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> and, then, and then I go, all right, I'll write another one, and that one is the one I'll direct. But I think after Dead Girl and Cheap Thrills, by the time I got to 68 Kill, I felt like I had enough juice that I could go to a producer and I could say, here's my new project, but the caveat is that you, ha- I have to direct this. And uh, so that's how I went into it, and we got it made. And, I mean, so far, the word, uh, the reviews, the social media, it just came out uh, in North America on Friday, and uh, it's been incredibly positive so far. Knock on wood. Good man. Knock on wood indeed. So before we go into the details about it, do you want to talk about your – you talked before we started. uh, Talk about your your trauma experience. Give us a trauma experience that we uh, we can revel in. (laughs) <laughs> the, 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 can, actually, let me let me rephrase that a trauma experience that has shaped you to make six that's helped shape you to make 68 kill i think that uh 
you know, Tromo were the first company that gave me a shot. I'm from the Midwest. I uh, don't have an uncle that works at Paramount. I didn't have any connections. I just really loved movies and wanted to make it. And Lloyd Kaufman is the kind of guy that will, like, feed you rope until you hang yourself or feed you enough rope that you could almost make an entire movie on your own. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and so it's really interesting that after, you know, we shot 68 Kill in New Orleans, Louisiana, we had inclement weather. We had... Uh, wild poisonous snakes and crocodiles it was crazy it was crazy you know I, it was uh but i had made two trauma movies and i kept saying that like people would be like oh my god it's so hot or oh my god i can't believe we lost an entire day to rain what are we gonna do and i kept saying you know what i've made two trauma movies this is almost like uh once you've done that once you've written and produced and assistant directed the toxic avenger part four like date and you made it through that fire, there is no way they can present me with any situation that I cannot manage to overcome or solve or get through. And that was the hugest thing. You know, trauma was like uh, film school and the most brutal boot camp that anyone has ever devised, like all rolled up into one. And once you're able to kind of, uh, 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 I lived at trauma. We shot the toxic Avenger part four and I slept on an inflatable mattress in an abandoned furniture factory with no shower. It just had like a mop sink to wash off and to brush your teeth in for like 32 days. And, uh, you know, if you can get by sort of like without the creature comforts of anything for that long, just to make a movie, then, uh, everything else seems pretty easy. It's like it's like, you've, it's like you've just described Full Metal Movie, you know, as a Full Metal Jacket. It's like they're gonna they're gonna break you down to build you back up. That you know, that's exactly exactly what it was. I mean, it was a trial by fire, and uh, and 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 it was like my first big my first movie. I mean, Terra Firmer, I was an actor in, mm. so you were treated a little bit better because you're an actor. And we also shot that in Manhattan, so I got to go home at the end of the day. Whereas, uh, you know, we shot in upstate New York with Citizen Toxie, and I had much more uh, responsibility on that movie. And I left my wife and I moved there. And, you know, it was it was like uh, it was like doing a military campaign. <laughs> Super. So so when you when you were when you were uh, adapting 68 Kill to to be ready for screen and obviously you've got you've got all this experience behind you already. So you kind of you kind of know what it is to write a movie and you're building and it's your second directorial is it is that right your second film yes. uh-huh. um so what what were the um what were you, what, the, the book is one thing and that's the style you were you were hoping to emulate and you say you know the, the novelist has already given you props on on what you've managed to do with it but what were you thinking cinematically what was what were you trying to bring to it that you thought i've not seen before or i better bloody get that on screen because that's something i really enjoy what sort of things were you channeling to to bring into production you know, I think that fundamentally this was an extremely modestly budgeted movie. Obviously, mm-hmm. I can't get numbers, but it was extremely modestly budgeted. And I've worked in this world for a really long time. And my whole thing was do not let the budget dictate what you want to do. You know, mm-hmm. uh, put it all in there and then you'll figure it out. You have to be as ambitious as you possibly can. Uh, I had people who watched the movie that didn't know anything about it, but did, did, but knew sort of like where my budget level was, how many days I had to shoot. And they were like, oh, I thought during this one moment when we, they went into this amazing location that, you know, they would get locked in this location and the rest of the movie would take place there because that's what, 
you know, maybe I would do if I had a very limited budget. And right. I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to go to all the locations. I'm going to have the biggest cast like I've ever like worked with. Uh, and I understand that we're talking about very little money and it's I'm, I'm giving myself a great challenge. Uh, now, the other thing is, is also you're you're. Uh, a lot of people are comparing it to sort of grindhouse movies and mm-hmm. that kind of – and I totally love those, but I love them, I think, for a different reason. It, it's really interesting that, uh, you know, when I shot this movie, I would be like, man, I sure would like a steady cam. And my producers were like, said to me, well, you can afford a steady cam for two half days. So pick out where you're going to use it because those are the only days you get it. I said, man, I really would like a crane. And they were like, you can have a crane for one shot. So make sure <laughs> you pick the shot that you really want because we can only afford it for one shot. So I think that a lot of people are picking up on this sort of uh, this sort of '70s exploitation grindhousey vibe, and it's less to do with the actual. I feel like a lot of it has to do less with the the you know obviously it's grindhousey, it's crazy, it's a wacky movie. Mm. But I really only had the tools that a guy making a movie for a low budget in 1972 had. I mean, I had a camera, and I had a small dolly, and I had a tripod. And so you have to start to think, well, man, I don't have a drone. I don't have, like, all this flashy stuff. I don't have uh, 32 days to shoot. I don't have 30 days to shoot. I don't have 25 days to shoot. So, you know, how can I make something that's compelling and interesting and exciting uh, uh, without like all these tools. And I feel that all the guys that made these, these great grindhouse movies in the seventies, they were working under the same sort of general conditions that I did. And I was like, well, what do you got? You got attitude, you know, you've got acting, mm. you've got a screenplay, you've got costume, uh, to a lesser degree. You've got things like set design. These are all things that are like controllable within a budget. And if you apply vision to these aspects of it, it'll make up for the fact that, yeah, there's no drones. Yeah, I only had half a day of Steadicam. I think people nowadays are really used to like a, a more flashy visual style than what I gave them. But I've switched out a flashy visual style for what I consider a, a, a flashier narrative style. And I think that's what makes it sort of like pop a little bit. In a I was going to say, way. I'm going to say, but you've still got a frenetic movie, haven't you? You're, what's that? You've still got a frenetic movie. Yeah, yeah, but I think that that's, it's really interesting because the freneticness comes from the narrative and the acting and, and all these other sorts of elements. I think that a lot of people, they just throw the camera up and start yanking it around and they cut really fast and they put in some like chicka 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 music and everybody is tricked mm. into thinking that it's frenetic when in reality... Maybe it's something that we've seen happen before. We know what's going to happen. Whereas, like, uh, you know, I felt like I didn't, since I didn't have those tools, it was like every five pages, something needs to happen where the audience is like, wait, 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 what? And before, <laughs> they, before they even quite catch up with it, bam, we're like moving on. And I think that that, to me, is what's giving the movie the illusion of, of freneticness that the, the, the filmic aesthetic did not deliver. It's, it's interesting, but I mean, this is how I learned how to do it, you know. Uh, this is how I learned to do it, is how to uh, make the coolest and best and most uh, attention-grabbing thing you can with the absolute bare minimum of tools. Well, the thing, the thing is, and I don't, I don't you know, it's, it's, it almost seems like the spirit of invention is at every level of movie-making, as far as I can understand. I, was, I, was, I did some extra work on 
Tarzan, the big Warner Brothers movie. And mm-hmm. I'm at a big studio. This is a $300 million movie. And yet there's still guys strapping car batteries to a quad bike and sticking scaffolding on the handlebars to put a camera because they haven't got anything else to move a camera fast enough. And, right. and you're kind of like, they have, if they haven't got the right kit to use, then nobody has the right to have the right kit to use, if that makes sense. You know, in terms of... Right, right. It's sort of, so with that in mind, what was, what was your kind of, with the constraints you were working with, and you, you clearly, you understood that from the get-go, as opposed to, and I'm guessing the experience of trauma made you see um, that, those, that those things were going to come regardless. What were, what were some of the happy accidents you, or, or, or invention you come up with that got you beyond those constraints and achieved something above and beyond? For you. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a lot of that just has to. You're right. It's mother invention. It's perseverance. Okay. I mean, one yeah. of my best, my one of my best stories about this is. Uh, I mean, you haven't seen the movie yet, but there's a uh, there's a, a a sequence that takes place in a house where they go to rob this rich guy, and mm-hmm. in the script, I had written that he was a hunter and that he had uh, you know some stuffed heads, and you know, there's a little gag with a with a stuffed like taxidermy being the animal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I, I was like, oh, man, you know what? Maybe we can get a set designer. First, got to find a house. Then we got to find a set designer that can hopefully, like, go rent a head or two. You know, if we can just give the impression that this guy's a hunter. Maybe mm-hmm. we can Photoshop some photos or whatever. So we were uh, looking for locations, and somehow my production manager saw something on BuzzFeed on a website. And uh, it was, you know how BuzzFeed is. They were like, you will not believe this. Click here. (laughs) You click there, and they were like, look at this house that's for sale uh, uh, on this real estate site. And it was like this house, this beautiful, huge McMansion. And, I mean, it was chock full of, like, it had a giraffe. It had a lion. It had uh, this guy had hundreds and hundreds of dead animals everywhere. Like there was a table made out of a dead crocodile. You know, he was a big hunter. And so we were like, oh, this is exactly what would work, man. Look at this. And so then we followed the link on BuzzFeed to the real estate site. And lo and behold, this place was in Louisiana where we were shooting. No way. That's a manager. (laughs) Oh, my God. I was like, call up the real estate people and tell them that we're, we want to, like, view the house. Uh, we're interested in buying it. I don't care. I just need to get in that house and see it. And so we did that, and we went to the house, and then it was like, look, we don't really want to buy the house, but we're a film company, and here's the deal. And we convinced these people to let us shoot in their house for two days. And, <laughs> and we're talking like if, if I had taken a blank house and Michael Bay had a blank house this would have cost him a million dollars. Now, okay, let's be realistic. It would have cost him $450,000 to, uh, to, to rent, like, all of the animals and the space and everything like that. And uh, we were able to convince them to do it for, I mean, I, don't even, I can't say numbers, but a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. I get you. I get you. And it looks like... It looks like a million bucks, you know, and it was just because we were like putting our noses to the ground. I think that's it. When you're in an indie production, you can't just be like, here's what I want. Now start throwing money at the problem until you give me what I want. And uh, so you've got to think outside the box and be sort of inventive and just keep your eyes and your ears open all the time. And uh, that's exactly it was like we were driving around. There's a car chase in the movie. And we had one car that we had to buy for the whole picture, but we had another car that uh, was chasing it. We only needed for like a couple days. And we were just driving down the road, and I saw a car parked on the side of the road, and I was like, that's it. 
that's the car. Pull over, pull over. It was in a parking lot, and then we ended up going into every storefront in this little strip mall where it was parked, asking if anybody knew who owned that car. No and way. eventually found the guy who owned the car, and we convinced him to loan us the car for a couple of days so that we could shoot this stuff. And then the car looks beautiful in the movie. So this is just sort of the head that you've got to go into a movie at this level with. So essentially what you're saying is if you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's it is you've got to do, you got to beg a little bit, you know, you just don't, when you don't have the money to do it, but you have to keep in mind what your vision is and how to achieve it in a roundabout way that other people may not even attempt to do. You are listening to the Britflix Fright Fest Preview Podcast. Now, one one of your producers is uh, Travis Stevens, yeah, on, on yeah. the movie, and Travis is doing is involved with a scheme at Fright Fest this year, where there's going to be him, Barbara Crampton. Charles Edwards from MPI International and Dominic Brunt, one of the other directors who's done Adult Babies. And there's like a new writer's scheme sort of thing that they're starting up at a Fright Fest. So right. from your point of view, making a movie with Travis, I mean, obviously Travis also did um, Cheap Thrills and he, he, you, were, you were in Starry Eyes as well, which I think he produced as well, or one of the yeah. producers on. My scene got cut, but <laughs> oh. I'm still... I'm still on the IMDb. You but are, they, you are. I seen. I didn't even make it onto the uh, the bonus features of the disc, so that's lost forever. But you know what? I'll keep the credit. What the hell? Well, let's go back to 68 Kill as I get over my faux pas. Um, <laughs> what, what, does, what does someone like Travis bring to you as the filmmaker then? From a production side, where, where does he begin to help you make the movie you want to make? As much as, as, much as all that stuff that you're talking about where you've got to grab the moment and, and find the opportunity and stuff, what is he doing to help you make a good movie? Uh, Travis is there from the very, very, very beginning. I mean, I gave him my first draft and uh, I was like, yeah, I don't think this is going to quite work. And he's like, you're right. And we discuss and I go back and I do work. He's there for the development of the script. I mean, fundamentally... He helps find the money, which is like super duper important. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was there for every day of the set. He's right there with me. He's a real hands-on producer, and uh, he's got a good head and a good eye. I mean, and look at Snowfort is a pretty small, small company, but they've made a lot of uh, really, really big and and well, well respected indie films. So he brings like that experience. Also, you know, fundamentally, what's really important from a producer's standpoint is you know he knows. How to get that movie out there, how to get it in the hands of distributors, how to get it, you know, uh, he's super crucial during pre-production and production, but it's after after the movie's done when a filmmaker like me is standing there going, well, now what do I do with this? Like uh, Travis uh, and Snowfort were indispensable in getting me into the right festivals, getting the right people to see it. Uh, you know, you, you hope that the, the, movie, the movie carries... The movie is good and people like it, but like having a, a an experienced producer can help you navigate like what the heck you're supposed to do when you're done with the movie, which 99% of filmmakers, I don't I didn't know anything about that. My first movie, I just made a movie and then was like, now I'll figure it out and uh, oh my god, if I had had a Travis Stevens with me in my first movie, maybe it wouldn't have like disappeared into obscurity. <laughs> was you was talking to festivals then? Was your was your was the world premiere South the Southwest? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, 
for people who don't know them, what what does that give the movie then? What does that help? Because you know, festivals are festivals to most people. So, but South by Southwest has got a very different identity, hasn't it, in terms of what it can do for a movie, as it were. Yeah, I would say there's maybe a handful of what we call the big five, and it would be like Sundance, uh, South by Tribeca. Uh, you know, I'm mm. doing. You know, these are there's a certain number of film festivals that if you can get in there, you're going to sort of get the ears and the eyes of the people that you that 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 can uh, that will buy buyers and distributors and things mm. like that. Uh, so we got into the Midnighters section of uh, South by, which is where the edgier, crazier movies are. And normally, by the time the audiences show up there, they've been drinking all day. They're ready to have a good time, and uh, our movie just seemed to hit the temperature just right. We won the audience award at South by Southwest. Uh, Congratulations uh, after the fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, based on that, you know, you win. There's only two awards at South by. There's a jury and an audience, you know, for the Midnighters. And uh, so when there's like 16 movies or whatever it is, but only two of them get awards, and yeah, the audience award is really important. That means that people, end users, like people that will spend money or like watch movies like it, so that really helps you with being able to get sort of uh, distributors interested and also other festivals then become interested and then you don't have to sort of do the song and the dance trying to convince them to look at your movie. They go, oh, well, if it played at South By, then we're interested in seeing it. You don't need to submit it through, you know, the usual you. means, like we want to check it out. So festivals begin to request the movie, and then festivals start to play the movie. And I mean, 68 Kill has had, like, a really amazing festival run thus far, including, I mean, Fright Fest is coming up. So Of course, yeah. And one of the other awards you won was um, for, uh, what was it, the um, at Boston? <laughs> yeah, Boston Underground Film Festival gave us, I think it was, what is the most effectively offensive, uh, which is the Director's Choice Award. Um, so, hey, man, you know. <laughs> well, give us, give us, give us, a, for those that haven't seen I've not seen it, and obviously most people listening to it in the run-up to Fright Fest won't have seen it. So what, what give us, give us a flavour as to what, I mean, obviously the way you described the film at the start gives us a sense that you might want to assault our senses a bit. But, but in what way do you think you deserve the award for offensive, to being offensive with 68 Kill? You know, this is going to sound completely insane, but I was honestly, I mean, I, I love it. I love the award, but I really thought that I was making like sort of a fun, lighthearted, lovable <laughs> romantic <laughs> comedy thriller. I, I really didn't. Uh, I mean, because you've seen Dead Girl. I mean, that's yeah, me yeah. going like, let me like, like shove your face in it a little bit. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you did and that. I was like, oh, this is sort of sweet. I mean, yeah, okay. It's insane. It's got snuff films and, and <laughs> serial killers and, 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 you know, death and murder and, you know, all this terrible stuff. But ultimately at its heart, you know what I mean? It's kind of a uh, love story. Uh, so I'm as uh, surprised. I thought that, I, honestly, I had discussions with my wife while she was looking at the script, and she was like, this is too over the top. It's too crazy. You need to and, – and so, you know, I did some polishes to kind of like, you know, take the – take the roughness out of it a little bit. Uh, uh, and I thought, oh, man, I've totally detoothed myself. I declawed myself. Uh, but, you know, I did it for the sake of trying to maybe get a little bit of a wider audience, and, and I had no problem with that. But then the wider audience is like, this is the most insane thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so I think I just have a, uh, I have a broken gauge in my mind. I was, I was about to say, this, this could be the measure of you. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It says a lot more about me than it does about uh, the Boston Underground Film Festival. <laughs> the fact that I was like, really? Oh, okay. I thought I wasn't making an offensive movie, but I'll take it. I'll take it. I don't ever want Scarecrow to uh, spray you with his spray and let's see, let's see your nightmares. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I don't want to know what's in there either, quite frankly. So are you going to be in town then for your film? You know, I'm not... Um, I just couldn't make it out. I've, I've got another engagement. I'm going to a Quake Con in Dallas, Texas, okay. where uh, it's a big video game thing. I wrote a uh, video game called The Evil Within 2 that comes out uh, planetarily uh, October 13th. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, it's a big, big horror survival video game, so I've got to go do some uh, previous press stuff for that but uh, i wish i could i've had several movies play at uh, fright fest i hear that the festival is like super amazing uh but i just couldn't make it out this year fair dues fair dues so what so with that in mind then when the audience are watching it and you've obviously watched this with some audiences already what what are you what are you excited for for them to experience at fright fest then what what is what are some of the things you've noticed in people's reaction to watching your movie you know, I think that uh, I just hope that it continues with what I've seen so far, which is there are many, many, many beats in the movie where you can feel the audience being like, wait, what? What? Mm-hmm. Uh, they get, is that as long as we can maintain sort of this uh, ragged unpredictability that the movie seems to have for audiences. I mean, that's the most edifying thing as a director. Uh, you know, you can do a thing where you explode somebody's head or you, uh, you know, do something shocking and violent, and uh, that's always going to get a reaction. But when you can get that sort of same kind of like, oh, my God, reaction from just sort of a story turn or something sort of unexpected happening that's not necessarily a big set piece, mm. that's when you feel really satisfied as a writer and a director, is when you get these kind of vocal reactions from a scene where two people are just having a conversation, but what they reveal in that conversation is so kind of like shocking people that you can actually hear them like physically react to it. That's when you really feel like, uh, feel like you've hit a stride. No, that's one of the beauties of cinema, you know, going back to where we started with cinema versus books and stuff is that cinema can throw us like incidentals that then grow once we've heard them. Cause they, they were meaningless to start with. And then later, they become meaningful, and we're like, "Oh no, right? What has right. this? What has this filmmaker done to my mind with <laughs> where we seeded it and where we we play it off?" I think that's uh, the the power of the power of cinema in some senses. Yeah, no, I agree, and like I said, I mean, everybody loves a big gore set piece or something like that, but. If that's all that's in your toolkit, then it just sort of has a there's a law of diminishing returns, you know, uh, not to whatever. I mean, I love trauma, but a lot of their movies for me, it's like that first 30 minutes you are on a high. But then it's almost like getting punched in the face so many times over and over that you're just sort of worn out at the end. You need to, like, choke somebody a little bit and then let go and let them breathe. <laughs> choke them a little bit and then let go and let them breathe and then punch them in the face when they don't know it's coming, you know, and that to me is, uh, that's what it's all about. (laughs) Well, you, you, you hinted at some of the stuff about what it was like to shoot in New Orleans. So, so what were, what were, what were some of the challenges you had? I mean, you mentioned lose, uh, finding venues, I mean, finding cars and stuff. So of what you knew you were going to get, going to have when you got there, what was it like as a place to shoot? I mean, I've, I've been been once, I've only been for five days or so, but it's a, it's a beautiful city. Uh, it's chaotic within the city itself, and uh, it's 
it's pretty rough around the edges for obvious reasons for what's happened there and stuff. Um, how was it as a place to shoot a movie? Um, it's interesting and it just, it fit the milieu of this movie perfectly. You know, it's about people that live in trailer parks doing desperate things and working blue collar jobs and needing money and, uh, you know, gas station attendants and septic tank workers and, you know, trailer park denizens and drug dealers. So not only did we, uh, you know, shoot in New Orleans, but we shoot shot in those like sort of grotty the grotty areas like all around New Orleans. There's no scenes that take place in Bourbon Street or any tourist joints. You know, we were like out out in the out in the depths of Louisiana. Uh, uh, so it really worked out well for the visual aesthetic of the movie. But uh, it was pretty crazy, though. I mean, it's a it's a crazy town. And, you know, things like nature is just constantly encroaching on that town. Like be it be it rain or floods or like we would shoot uh, we'd shoot a car broken down on the side of the road and you would look over and you would see an alligator's head poking out of the swamp you know like mm. forty feet away and here we are we're a film crew shooting this stuff uh, one day we were shooting at a location we showed up at this location we had chosen and somebody had shot like about a three hundred fifty pound wild boar blown its head off and then dumped its body right in the middle of our location and it was all like. Uh, swollen and rotting and you know we had to figure out a way to get that out of there uh, we definitely lost entire days of shooting to rainstorms uh, that would come and go at a moment's notice uh, it was challenging but I think it's what gave us gave the movie you know it all works together to give that move the movie the, the flavor that it has is, is the novel set there or was was that a, a choice of the production uh, that was a choice of the production. I mean, the novel, the novelist lives in Nashville, Tennessee, okay. and I think it was written to be like take place around there, which is like uh, basically Nashville, Tennessee, and New Orleans, Louisiana, Louisiana are on the same uh, uh, horizontal line on the planet. They're just you know, Nashville's a little bit further north. Uh, uh, I grew up in Indiana, right next to Nashville. So I just uh, I knew that we couldn't get away with shooting. I, there are many filmmakers, I think, who live in L.A. would be like, let's go to Barstow or let's make it like a desert movie. I think a lot of people do that. It's close by enough that if you have any equipment issues or whatever, you can uh, you can, you know, run back to L.A. really quick. But oh, I yeah. just didn't. Like, this was a desert movie. This was, like, where I grew up. This was, like, meth heads and tweakers and freaks like uh, southern Indiana or Kentucky or Tennessee. And Louisiana, just for me, fit that uh, fit that aesthetic. You can't, you, there, you can't find a good film crew in Kentucky or Indiana right now. But Louisiana had sort of the uh, – um, what's the word I'm looking for? It had the, 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 the base. Like, there were enough – there's enough equipment houses and workers there and everything – that you could shoot a film there uh, and have a support system, but mm. it looked it looked like I needed it to look. You know. Got you, got you, got you. Now, one thing I, I mean, this is meaningless in, in in this in isolation this podcast. But I, before speaking to you, I, I spoke to a director called Ryan Prowse about his movie Low Life, which is also showing at Fright Fest with yours, and and his is also a heightened sort of crime caper thriller trash people living living in, in living in living in society but most people don't notice that they do um but they right. seem to get they seem to get by and seem to, but but obviously their situation never never gets better but but with that question in mind or with that observation in mind like where why do you think that kind of movie sits well 
in what in what traditionally is horror genre where where does where does that i mean obviously life life being horror i guess is one thing but it seems <laughs> to me that the the, the sort of the, the the crime caper thriller ha, sits neatly in the horror festival circuit yeah i mean look fundamentally it's a psychological thing you know oh. uh, uh, I, I feel like it's a des- desperation equals fear equals horror in some weird kind of a way. They trigger, I think, the same the same sort of uh, uh, panic uh, compulsions in your mind. You know what I mean? It's mm. uh, 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 you know that, that, that's exactly it. You know, people are gonna death and desperation are all part of that same. I'd say they're not even the flip side of the same coin. I feel like they're they're all like uh, squished together on the same side of the same coin fundamentally. <laughs> you know, you have a you you have a uh, you know horror is uh, sometimes monsters. It's sometimes things from without. But I mean, a lot of horror is really the things from within, and uh, and uh, and a lot of crime. It all it all issues from. From within, your desire, your deepest, darkest desires manifesting and, and then bad things happening as a result of them. This is the fundamental building blocks of horror and, and thrillers and crime and all of that. Like, I think uh, uh, they're, they're inextricably married in my mind. No, no, no. I, I, I agree with your, your hypothesis. Totally. Well, look, thank you very much for uh, coming on the Britflix podcast to give us the insight into 68 Kill. I can't wait to see it. Hopefully I'll, I'll see it sooner rather than later. Um, and uh, good luck with it at Fryfest. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, thanks to uh, Britflix for having me. And uh, I hope that the Fryfest audience loves it. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.